Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with, with Brown Harris Stevens. And as my listeners know, I love this city. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing city. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. On some shows, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore its history and its current energy. What makes that particular New York neighborhood special? Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city and its history that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes has covered topics as diverse and illuminating as American presidents who came from, lived in, who had some interesting history here, um, about half of them have. We've talked about the history of women activists and the women's suffrage movement. We have talked about the history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling. Believe it or not, bicycles have been part of our city for 200 years. We've talked about the history of punk and opera. Those were separate shows, by the way. We've looked at our public library systems. We have three of them here in the city. We've looked at the subway. We visited some of our greatest train stations, both past and present, and even some of our bridges. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we're going to have a special show. We're going to talk about artistic roundtables in New York. Actually, two of them. One, the famous Algonquin Roundtable, and another roundtable a little bit later than that, Andy Warhol's Factory. And I'm uh, dedicating this special show uh, to one of my classmates uh, from Vassar. She was a brilliant writer. Her name was Nancy Frank. Sadly, she's no longer with us, but I'm sure she would have loved this program. Uh, my guest tonight is the famous David Griffin. David is the special consultant and uh, for the show, and we also collaborate on some other things. Uh, David is a lifelong architectural enthusiast. He provides great sales-enhancing services for the national real estate community. David's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. His clients include architects, design firms, developers, brokers, and marketing companies. David has created a special series called Room at the Top. It's co-hosted with Jennifer Wallace of Nascent Arc, New York. It's the only ongoing networking series in real estate to feature tours of Manhattan's greatest buildings. David has written a lot. He is latest blog, Every Building on Fifth, documents every single building on Fifth Avenue from Washington Square right up to where Fifth Avenue ends at the Harlem River in Harlem. That's where the Harlem Armory is. His writing has appeared in Real Estate Weekly, Metropolis, Dwell, and the National Trust's Preservation Magazine. David, it's good to see you on the show. Thank you so much, and welcome yes. back. <laughs> Very good to see you. <laughs> yes, we had a little technical difficulty. A, but, a, little, a little one, yes. But thank goodness uh, it got resolved by airtime. We'll have to thank your computer technician, uh, which is you, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> David, you're a regular. A lot of our listeners know you and your background, um, but we haven't talked about your background in a little bit. Um, so I want to ask you, uh, you're from New York in the metropolitan area, but not from the city itself, not originally. No, I was from uh, a town out on Long Island near Port Jefferson, uh, south of that called Center Reach. And I lived there until I was about uh, 11 or 12. Um 
And uh, yeah, I became interested in architecture because my siblings and I were actually the first children to be hired by New York State to be costumed interpreters at a Long Island museum, Old Bethpage Village Restoration, which is a, a village that's been restored to the 1860s appearance near the south shore of Long Island. And we used to go out and do the annual uh, fair there and also the Christmas holiday programs. We had a chance sometimes to actually stay in some of the old houses overnight, which was amazing. And uh, I think that, along with other things, kind of uh, sort of inculcated an interest in buildings and architecture uh, from a, a fairly young age. In me. So did you uh, we've never talked about this before. Did you stay at the buildings like in the in the course of before and after you being uh, a child docent or was it sort of to get you in the mood and orientation and then come back uh, at a later time? We, to... we would actually spend the night there. There were a couple of the houses that were set up as sort of temporary office spaces and they had some sleeping quarters upstairs. So we would bring sleeping bags and sleep in the old rooms. Uh, as I recall, the one house we used to stay in dated back to the early 1700s, around 1710, 1720, was a big wooden house with a gambrel roof and uh, very evocative of the Dutch colonial period. And a little creepy actually, but, but very interesting. And just sort of the, the idea that these things kind of had their own history to tell independently of just being buildings, I thought was very interesting at the time. I loved thinking about how old the things were. Did you ever experience any kind of paranormal activity there? Any? I was about to say, my, my brother would be able to tell you more than I can, but he did feel that there was some sort of a presence in that particular house that he encountered. Oh, one of the future shows I decided we're going to do around Halloween is going to be uh, haunted houses in the city. Paranormal oh, activity goes. Yeah, yeah. I've been doing a lot, but some uh, reading on it. Yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. But we have to wait till Halloween for that to keep it, right. you know, in, in, you know, in theme. Um, how did you get interested in architectural history and in New York history in particular? We're not going to talk about architecture, but that's a big specialty of yours. Uh, well, uh, we are going to talk a little bit about architecture, and then we're going to talk a bit about the buildings that held these particular round tables, as you call them. Uh, just, you know, observing things. Um, we used to travel up to see Mike Wilder's family in Montreal, and my mother is an artist, so she would create these dioramas of the city and draw the buildings. So she'd be like, this is what this type of building looks like, and this is what this type of building looks like. And I think um, her attention to detail was something that kind of sparked my mind's eye a bit. So I was learning things kind of through that method. And uh, just, I think once you begin noticing your surroundings, you never not notice your surroundings. Well, speaking of surroundings and surroundings of the first round table, we're going to talk about the Algonquin round table. But before we talk about the people and what made the round table famous, let's talk about the place where it actually happened, the Algonquin Hotel on West 44th Street. Uh, it's actually one of my favorite places in the city. Um, yes. Was it always a hotel? Uh, it was actually conceived as what is called an apartment hotel, meaning that people would rent the rooms as apartments and have room service through the central facilities of the hotel. That was fairly common around the turn of the century, particularly for bachelors uh, or people who just had very small families. Um, and it would open in 1902. It was very quickly converted to what we consider a traditional, quote-unquote, lodging establishment, a hotel that we recognize. Um, its first owner-manager was Frank Case. And he bought the hotel in 1927 and established many of its traditions. Uh, it's 181 rooms, the Beaux-Art style, designed by the architect Goldwyn Starrett. It's actually fairly typical for the architecture of its time in terms of its height, its contribution to the street wall, 
and it's sort of ornate details. Uh, it, it has a very nice interior, very sort of lived in, very roomy, uh, but it wouldn't have been considered particularly anything fancy by the standards of its own day. Uh, we see it now as much more special, I think, than the people that, uh, that first began to use it. It was really just sort of a businessman's hotel. Mm. Except maybe for the writers and other art types who started having lunch there on a weekly basis. Yes. What was the roundtable? What was the famous roundtable? Well, the roundtable was a group of writers, as you say, critics, actors, and socialites. Uh, they gathered initially as part of a practical joke on one of their number, Alexander Walcott, who was a well-known theater writer. Uh, and they met for lunch probably every day at the Algonquin Hotel from 1919 until about 1929. Oh, they actually met every day? I thought they met once a week. Wow, wow. Yes, it was a daily occurrence because most of them worked in the area. So uh, the newspapers were in the area. The theaters, of course, were in the area. So it was an easy thing to kind of step into the Algonquin and have lunch. Uh, It was a convenient spot for all of them, I think. They didn't, they didn't have to travel too far, and that's one of the reasons why this sort of coalesced around that, that location. Um, at the luncheons, they engaged in sort of wisecracks, wordplay, and witticisms that were sort of fashionable at the time. Uh, we are thinking, you know, through the 1920s. And because a lot of them were newspaper columnists uh, or were people who columnists wrote about, uh, these observances were reported. So people had a sort of steady stream of the sophisticated dialogue that was attributed to these people. Uh, and it really kind of, it sort of engendered a whole new hallmark of conversation, both I think in real life, but also in film. You know, you listen to the movies of that time period, the wisecracking and the screwball comedies and the romances and thrillers and things, and that kind of thing, the thing that we now call snark really had its roots in this period and the way that people would use sarcasm and extreme diffidence to kind of put a point across. Hmm. Aside from Wolcott, who were some of the more famous members of the roundtable and what did they do? Well, um, there was, uh, of course, Robert Benchley was a famous member of the the roundtable. He was a a fairly well-known writer of the period, less so now. Um, Dorothy Parker is probably the most famous to this day of the roundtable. Uh, she had a reputation for pelting her friends with vicious insults, and it was more probably her than any other person that led to the group being dubbed the Vicious Circle. That was the first name for the round table. Uh, they were then called the round table after caricature by a cartoonist named Edmund Duffy, uh, who worked for the Brooklyn Eagle, and he showed them sitting at the round table all wearing armor, presumably against each other's barbed observations. So uh, that then became the popular sobriquet for the the group as as a whole. Um, There were a lot of people who sort of dipped in and out of the round table. Edna Ferber uh, was a well-known writer and journalist at the time. She was associated with the round table. Um, Helen Hayes, uh, actually, at Tallulah Bankhead, the well-known actress. Um, Harpo Marx, uh, Groucho's brother, was a, a regular at the round table. Uh, and a number of other people, uh, primarily from the theater and critics sort of side of things, um, although there were some people who were in the arts as well. So it was it was a fairly broad uh, sort of company, if you will, of people. 
You mentioned the vicious circle. One of the uh, uh, fun indie movies I saw in the nineties was Mrs. Parker and the vicious circle. It was, I was really uh, captivated by it. Yeah. That's um, a great movie. Actually. I think it's underrated. I forget who is the actress who plays Dorothy Parker. I don't, I think it was Parker Posey. I'm uh, I could I be wrong. It was, no, it's actually, it's Jennifer Jason Leigh. Jennifer ja- okay. Thank you. I'm sorry. And she yeah. listened to recordings of Dorothy mm. Parker because Parker had a very, a highly stylized accent. This was sort of at the, the age of what was called the transatlantic accent, where people sort of had this half British, half American way of talking. And <laughs> Parker really went in for that with great gusto. She, she was very a very slow speaker. And um, Lay really kind of threw herself into that role, listening to Parker's way of elocuting herself. Mm. We're going to take a break in a minute, David, but I wanted to ask you, did any of the members of the roundtable, do they actually work together professionally? Yes, actually. Uh, There was one time where they all got together to work on an original theatrical production, uh, which was staged one night only at the Aldorquin in 1922. It was called No Siree. And uh, acts included a musical number uh, featuring the song The Everlasting Blues, written by Dorothy Parker, which was performed by Robert Sherwood. Tula Bankhead, Helen Hayes, and Ruth Gilmore all played chorus girls. Uh, the Greasy Hag and O'Neill play in one act was by Coughlin, Connolly, and Walcott. And Mr. Wim Passes By, an A.A. Milne play. Uh, Milne, uh, who of course wrote the House of Pooh Corner books, was a favorite target of Dorothy Parker. She couldn't stand his writing. And she once reviewed the House of Pooh Corner by saying that Pooh's word, honey, marked the first place where she, quote, up because it was just so cutesy-wootsy. <laughs> All right, this is, a good, this is a good place to take a short break. We're going to be back in a moment. Um, we're going to take a break. And when we do, we're going to continue our conversations with David Griffin about famous New York roundtables. We're talking about the Algonquin roundtable in this segment. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Are you interested in having a better relationship with yourself, others, and God? Greetings. I'm your host, Dr. George Andow, for the show, A Journey Through Into Awareness. On my show, we journey into the awareness that the mind of God is the true seat of our personal consciousness. We join together each Monday at 7 p.m., so tune in on Talk Radio NYC. Hey everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector coming at you from my attic. 
each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy in Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. back to rediscovering new york on our episode this is david this is the 101st episode of rediscovering new york can you believe it wow uh, yeah. <laughs> congratulations thank you and you've been our sped the show special consultant for the start of which i'm really appreciative and thankful well thank um, you and on this program we are focusing uh it's a special episode we have one guest for the whole the whole show we're talking about several famous artistic circles in new york the first one is the algonquin roundtable which um, happened, took place daily at the Algonquin Hotel for about a decade. Um, we talked about, uh, right before the break, David, about collaboration. I uh, wanted to ask you, what, what were some of the greatest professional accomplishments individually of some of the more famous members? Who, how accomplished were they in their own right? Well, uh, I mean, I think that Dorothy Parker's reputation really sort of stands almost apart from a lot of the Algonquin Roundtable members and that people think of her as a cultural figure in, in addition to her actual writing. You know, when I say something is a Dorothy Parker-like comment, most people sort of have an idea in their mind of what that means. So I think in some ways, uh, despite the fact that she actually, she actually had a rather negative assessment of the Algonquin Roundtable in her later years, um, she was really a major figure of that time period and really kind of a bellwether for criticism of the era. Um, then you have uh, Ross and his wife, uh, Jane Grant, and they were, of course, the founders of The New Yorker. So that's a major literary milestone in and of itself. Um, Tula Bankhead, I think most people would be familiar with her as a... Uh, great yes, darling. <laughs> yes, right. Um, and she, she served actually as the model, evidently, for the uh, Disney villainess Cruella de Vil. Oh, she did! Wow, it was, it was she and Polly Delano, a um, a cousin of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, were the two women who they modeled uh, Cruella Deville after. Uh, Tula after Cruella's behavior was after Tula, and her driving was after Polly Delano, who wrecked car after car after car. Um, or that's my understanding of it. Um, but Tula Bank, of course, was an extraordinarily well-respected actress on stage. Uh, we know her through screen performances, but she was really kind of one of the leading ladies of the live theater at that time, uh, particularly for her work with Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes, which was said to be uh, one of the greatest performances ever given on an American stage. Um, numerous others are, you know, obviously they're respected as writers. Alexander Wolcott, I think people are still reading his essays. 
Um, Harpo Marx, obviously his films with his brothers have sort of, you know, become part of American culture in a very you know significant way. Um, so Noel yeah, Coward I, was associated for a bit. He was associated for a bit. Um, and the Ferber, Helen Hayes, as I mentioned, and a lot of people know Helen Hayes is a very significant actress in her own right. Uh, both of the stage and on screen, uh, probably a little bit more of a screen presence than Bankhead was back in her day. But um, so there were, yeah, there was quite a bit of significant talent going through. They didn't always see it that way themselves, however. As I said, Parker thought, looking back on it, that it was a rather superficial group of people and that she thought that they wasted a great deal of time. She hated wisecracking. Um, she said, wit has truth in it. Wisecracking is merely exercising with words. And she felt that a lot of um, sort of people kind of found a cultural dead end at the round table, uh, which was one of the reasons why I think the group began to fade in popularity as time went on. Mm. I want to talk about the end of it, well, uh, the fading of it in a bit. Um, but you mentioned that that Parker had some criticisms of it later on in her life. And I wanted to ask you about uh, uh, other people who criticized the roundtable. I sort of call them the critics of the critics. I mean, yeah. the roundtable were a lot of writers who, you know, uh, um, were sort of cutting in some of their assessments of some other people and other things at the time. What did some other you know, famous people say about uh, looking into the roundtable? Well, uh, you know, obviously you have a group of people here who are noted as primarily as critics, regardless of whatever else it is that they do. And they're also famous for, you know, lobbing very sarcastic and very poisonous remarks at people. Uh, it's bound to happen that they're going to find their share of detractors. And they did. A lot of people did think that um, the sort of superficial, um, very, very polished wit was a little bit over the top. Some people actually accused them of rehearsing their witticisms in advance. Uh, this was also a time period where people began to accuse each other of what's now called log rolling. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with the term, it means uh, when two writers get together or, well, quote unquote, get together, and each reviews the other's book and gives each other's book a good notice. It's like, oh, well, I just loved X's book and X's like, ah, I'm such a fan of Y's book. That's there's sort of a conflict of interest there because, you know, obviously you're reviewing each other's texts. Um, Is that kind of so, like you and I uh, complimenting each other's programming? <laughs> um, I wouldn't say so because we're not really making any money off of it now, are we? <laughs> I suppose. Um, however, uh, people who are well-known, James Thurber actually lived at the Algonquin Hotel. He couldn't stand them. He absolutely loathed that group. He accused them of being too consumed by idiotic practical jokes. He thought they were a bunch of, you know, stupid adolescents. That is, uh, I think, one of the ways that he put it. H.L. Mencken, who was actually much admired by many in the circle, who was a great critic of the time, uh, commented to his fellow writer Anita Luz uh, that their, quote, ideals were those of a vaudeville actress, one who was extremely in the know and inordinately trashy. So there were some people who just thought, you know, I don't really have time for this nonsense and yeah, kind of let them have it with both barrels on, on several occasions. When would some of the more famous members of the roundtable stop going to lunch at the Algonquin? When did the roundtable begin to lose some of its uh, circular uh, quality? Efficacy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, there's a story that Edna Ferber stopped by the Algonquin Hotel one day after being away from the city for several years. I believe she was actually in Alaska at the time. Um, and she stopped by the table and found a family from Kansas City sitting there having lunch. 
So she said to the hotel manager, who was still uh, Mr. Case, she said, well, what happened to the round table? And he said to her, well, what happened to the reservoir at 42nd Street and 5th Avenue? You don't think anything here stays forever, do you? And that was sort of the official end of it. But it began to fade around 1929, in part, I think, because of the stock market crash. And in part because, you know, when that happened, I think there was a dramatic shift in American culture and the kind of glib, breezy sort of style that was associated with these writers uh, began to fall out of favor. Things were not as easy as they had been. Things were not as funny as they had been. And uh, I think people were just kind of tired of the joke. So by around 1929, after the crash, the round table quickly sort of faded into oblivion. Although when you go, I haven't been to the Algonquin in a long time, but when I used to go, uh, not irregularly, for lunch sometimes and sometimes to the Blue Bar, which we'll get to, uh, there was that round table right in the back of the dining room still sitting there, yes. you know, waiting to be um, uh, to be seated at. In fact, you know, with some of my uh, political friends from Stonewall Democrats, I was trying to arrange us having dinner there, but they were renovating the hotel and we yeah. had a reservation and I got a call and they said, the dining room's not ready yet. We have to cancel the renova- the renovation. We were really uh, the, a reservation. We were oh, really dear. bummed about that, and that was my chance to shine with my you know with my political right. friends. But <laughs> <laughs> so we'll have to do it again after the pandemic. Um, we're talking about the artist of the roundtable, but let's talk about two of the famous venues of the hotel: um, the Oak Room, not the Oak Room at the Plaza, the famous Oak Room at the Plaza, but the famous Oak Room at the Algonquin. What was the Oak Room? Well, the Oak Room was basically a uh, a cabaret space. Um, it was a very, you know, highly regarded place to perform. Um, it was paneled with uh, with oak, that's the name. Uh, it was sort of a, a very conservative room. It was sort of small scale. Uh, it was part of the original 1902 design. And it was really became one of New York City's premier nightclubs um, opening in 1939. Uh, it was first called the Oak Room Supper Club and soon closed on account of World War II. It actually only reopened much later as a regular venue in 1980 and closed, unfortunately, for good in 2002 when the hotel management was sort of shifted over to one of these, whatever chain it is that owns and operates it now, shut Mm -hmm. down the Oakland because it really wasn't that much of a money-making proposition for the hotel. It never had been. Well, cabarets don't really make money. They, even though some of the great uh, performers and great, great artists of all time in singing have performed in cabarets, they don't have the same sort of return yes. and business component that theater does. So it's well, uh, Mike, Michael Feinstein was a person whose career was sort of launched at the Oak Room, and another person who uh, might be better known to our general listeners was Harry Connick Jr., who really got his start playing the piano there um, at the Algonquin Hotel. Mm. Um, there was a great jazz singer, uh, Sylvia Sims, a very interesting person. I, I actually looked up her history while I was doing this, and I, I just found her story to be very um, fascinating. Uh, as a singer, she actually died on stage there during a performance in 1992. She was 75, and she succumbed to a heart attack while singing. So, um, yeah, that was... Probably, I mean, if you were a jazz singer of the period, I can think of fewer places that you'd want to kind of take your final bow, literally. Uh, but that was an occurrence that did happen at the Oak Room. Mm. Um, the Plaza Hotel has Eloise in in folklore. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the Algonquin doesn't have a little girl, but the Algonquin has cats or has had cats. Yes, the hotel has a tradition of keeping a cat that used to have the total run of the place. And the practice appears to date to the 1930s when Frank Case took in a stray male cat that was named Rusty. So legend has it that the actor John Barrymore, who was dropping by for dinner himself, felt the cat needed a more quote-unquote dignified name and suggested renaming Rusty Hamlet. So nowadays, whenever the hotel's a cat, all the male cats are named Hamlet but all the female ones are named Matilda. Um, the last Matilda, who unfortunately is no longer with us, was actually what they call a ragdoll cat, which is a very pretty cat that has fluffy fur and a somewhat Siamese cat-like series of markings. And they're very well known for being very accommodating, very docile, gentle, easy to play with, thus ragdoll. They just kind of fold into any shape that they need to. And um, I think she was with the hotel for about 12 years. Uh, the current cat is Hamlet. Uh, he's Hamlet the Eighth. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, given the fact that we're in a pandemic, he's you know probably retired to his little kitty cat penthouse and is not making public appearances <laughs> at the moment. Well, good for Hamlet the Eighth. Yes. Um, we're going to end on a good note. One of my favorite topics, which are drinks and martinis. There was a, a famous bartender of note uh, at the hotel and at the Blue Room. Do you want to talk about him yes. as we uh, yes. conclude our Algonquin conversation? The the Blue Room, of course, is the bar at the... The Blue uh, Bar, not the Blue Room. Sorry, the Blue Bar. The Blue Bar is, of course, the bar at the Algonquin Hotel. It incorporates a portion of the former Oak Room that we were discussing earlier. Uh, they expanded the bar into that space. Hoi Wong was the bartender at the hotel and was actually the oldest person to hold such a position in New York State. He served at the Algonquin for 30 years until retiring in 2009. Um, He was the age of 90 when he did so. And I believe he had a hand in creating the Algonquin Hotel's um, uh, sort of the eponymous drink, which is named the Algonquin. Uh, which is a mixture of whiskey, um, vermouth, and pineapple juice. It's an Algonquin hotel. Wow. I'll have to try it when the blue bar opens and I can go back and patronize uh, the bar at the Algonquin, or any bar for that matter. Um, We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, David and I are going to talk, well, mostly David, I just asked the questions. We're going to talk about another famous artistic circle, Andy Warhol's Factory. Uh, We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a business owner? Do you want to be a business owner? Do you work with business owners? Hi, I'm Stephen Fry, your small and medium-sized business or SMB guy. And I'm the host of the new show, Always Friday. While I love to have fun on my show, we take those Friday feelings of freedom and clarity to discuss popular topics on the minds of SMBs today. Please join me and my various special guests on Friday at 11 a.m. on talkradio.nyc. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Hi. 
I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. Rediscovering New York, and you're back as well. Support for the program comes from our sponsors, Christopher Pappas, mortgage specialist at TD Bank. To find out how Chris can help you with all your residential home mortgage needs and tailor a mortgage that's right for you, please give Chris a call at 203-512-3918. And support also comes from the law offices of Thomas Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York, mostly its neighborhoods, sometimes its history, and the myriad textures of our amazing city. You can like the show on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions or would like to get on our mailing list, you can email me. That email address is jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One of the note before we get to our enlivened second topic for the night, uh, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about real estate, when I'm not on the air, I'm a real estate agent in our amazing city. I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646 306 Four seven six one. Our guest tonight is the great David Griffin. David is the show's special consultant. He's also the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding. Um, David, what are some of the interesting projects that you're working on at Landmark right now that people can find out about and access? Well, I've been doing um, a number of writing projects. I have a major article out in Brownstoner, the current issue. Uh, that I'm very pleased with, which is a history of 10 Montague Terrace, which is one of the largest brownstone mansions left in New York City. It's in Brooklyn. Really beautiful house. Very happy to have had a chance to write about it. Uh, I am in the process of making some updates to my blog, which has been sort of in stasis for a while. The blog is Every Building on Fifth, which is a capsule history of every single building on Fifth Avenue. And quite uh, a work. It's 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 it's, it's all, almost like a multi-volume set of, of architectural extravaganza. It, it took me several years to finish, in part because I had to block off time in order to walk stretches of Fifth in order to take the photographs. So it's sort of like, all right, when's the good weather? When do I have the time to do this? take 20 pictures and just hope that that's enough for the, the, the chapter that I had. But um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, so I'm going to be making some additions to that. I have some other writing projects that I'm working on. Um, and I am doing a new series for the New York Adventure Club, if people are interested in that. Um, Corey William Schneider is the founder of the New York Adventure Club. 
And we're doing some virtual tours of global architecture. So I'm actually taking a worldwide look at certain types of buildings. I have a talk coming up on the 26th, which will be about artists' homes and studios. So it'll be a way to sort of see how uh, the great artists of the world have kind of created their own environments. So I'm really looking forward to that. And that'll be uh, the first of a series of similar programs that I'll be doing with Corey. And I heard a rumor that you're also going to be talking on a special program about Harlem nightlife, past and present. I'm looking forward to that. Yes, <laughs> yes. Hosted by my good friend, Jeff Goodman. <laughs> um, speaking about famous artists and what they do, uh, The Factory. Andy Warhol was one of the most famous artists in the United States and, and probably the most famous of his time. Um, and he might have been the poster child for what we know now as pop art. Before we talk about the factory, let's talk a little bit about Warhol. What do you think made him so popular in his time? I think Warhol had a way of tapping into and then commenting on the commercial reality of life in America after the post-war period. I think he was he went into commercial art. He was a trained artist. He did commercial drawings. He did fashion drawings. He did advertisements. And he brought that sensibility sort of out of that realm and into the fine art world in a way that very few people had prior. Uh, pop art as a movement actually started in Great Britain with a few painters over there who worked primarily with painting and collage. But they didn't quite have the take on it that Warhol did, which was uh, to really kind of look at the way that processing images was the same thing now as processing celebrity and that there were new ways of being famous that didn't have to do with, you know, the, the sort of uh, here's the queen giving you the sash of this, the garter of that, that this and that and the other thing. Uh, there were ways to kind of accrue fame that were like accruing a product. And I think that was what Warhol was talking about in his art, if you will. And I think that really struck a chord with a lot of Americans because, well, who doesn't want to be rich and famous? So uh, Warhol was about that. He was about the need to be rich and famous and the way that that's sort of built into American society on a certain level. And I think, um, you know, people say a lot of people critiqued him as being very superficial. But I mean, I'm sort of like, well, American culture uh, on that level is very superficial. So I often wonder what he would have made of the Kardashians, for example. Probably nothing, because he'd already kind of foretold that that was going to be the way that things were going to turn out. So um, reality television is very much sort of a thing that I think Warhol foresaw in a way. And I think um, his view of America is very intriguing for how kind of prescient it was. Well, I think he might have done some screen paintings of the Kardashians if he were alive today. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. If they made money, he definitely would. Absolutely. But I think even Warhol might be surprised to find out posthumously what his uh, what some of his art is selling for after he uh, sadly died. Um, what was the factory, David, and how did it get its name? You tend not to think of of art studios as factories, but and but the factory is famous. What was what was it and how did it get its name? Well, the factory actually had three different locations and uh, the original factory was in an industrial building. It was on the fifth floor at 231 East 47th Street in Midtown. Um, the rent was only $100 per year. Per year, oh, not even per year. month. Wow. Yes, this was not a desirable location. Let's put it that way. And even with the United the, Nations down the block, it wasn't considered desirable. It was. It was a mess. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that a, a great deal of that area where the United Nations now stands was actually industrial in character. Uh, there were slaughterhouses there. There were barge ports there. 
um, the renovations and kind of gentrification that went on with the creation of places like Beekman Place and Sutton Place, that was a little bit further to the north. So that whole part of the city was really a lot more um, kind of run down and desolate than people would assume that it would be, considering the fact that it's so close to things we now think of as being very famous. Um, Warhol actually had to leave in 1967 when they demolished the building. They tore it down in order to build a luxury apartment house. So the, the neighborhood definitely changed while he was there. And he relocated his studio to the sixth floor of what's called the Decker Building. It's at 33 Union Square West. It still stands uh, near the corner of East 16th Street. And that's probably the location that's the most famous. It's where most of the activity happened that people associate with the factory. There was a third location. Uh, in 1973, he moved to 860 Broadway. That was at the north end of Union Square. That building is also still there. That space was much larger, but it was less open to the public for reasons that we will get into momentarily. Mm. Let's, yes, uh, let's let's talk about the first factory. There was a very special way that it was decorated. Do you want to talk about that? And it's yes. quite striking to see pictures of it now. Ray Johnson, uh, the artist, uh, took Warhol to what was called a hair-cutting party at Billy Names' apartment, were decorated with tin foil and silver paint, and Warhol fell in love with the environment and asked him to do the same scheme for his loft that he had just leased, uh, the, the original factory. The original factory was often referred to as the silver factory because it had an all-silver interior, silver paint and tin foil, mirrors, that sort of thing. Um, those are basic decorating materials that evidently were loved by uh, users of amphetamines. Now, I'm not sure why, as I have never used amphetamines and don't plan on it, um, but it was something that was a, a kind of a um, inside joke, if you will, among that community. And I imagine that whatever the, the, the colors and sort of fractal qualities of things like mirrored glass might be you know, enhance whatever the effect is of the drug on in question. What kind of art was created at the factory? Uh, a lot of things. Warhol, as you know, was uh, famed for a series of silk screens. And so uh, a lot of that process went on at the factory. And he was also very interested in filmmaking. He was a photographer, of course. Uh, he made films himself and he encouraged other filmmakers to work with him. So the factory became this space where um, there was one person who said, you know, uh, John Cale, I believe, and the musician said, quote, it wasn't called the factory for nothing. It was where the assembly line for the silk screens happened. While one person was making a silk screen, somebody else would be filming a screen test or working on a piece of music. Every day was something new. They were always creating things. So unlike the Algonquin Roundtable, where it was essentially badinage and a kind of war of witticisms, uh, the factory was really a place where things were being made. And before we talk about some of the creative types who uh, that some people might recognize their names, um, Warhol assembled quite an interesting collection of, of assembly line workers for his factory, didn't he? Yes, the so-called Warhol superstars. Um, uh, the superstars were an interesting group of people. Uh, a lot of them were members of the transsexual community, such as Candy Darling, for example, um, or they were transvestite. They were uh, drag queens like Hollywood Lawn. Um, they were other artists. They were writers. They were kind of free thinkers. They were bohemians. Some of them, like Edie Sedgwick, were uh, very well-to-do, very aristocratic. Others of them, like Billy Name, kind of just were entirely self-invented characters. 
And uh, they kind of created this amazing buzz around the factory. They were helping Warhol with actually producing his material, but they were also doing their own projects and they were all these sort of larger than life personalities. So the factory became a kind of a, a place that people wanted to see, wanted to visit. Uh, a lot of very famous people, um, you know, stopped by. Um, everyone from titled nobility to Hollywood stars like Liza Minnelli and Barbara Streisand. And uh, the factory really took on this quality, uh, as did Studio 54, the famous disco during the same time period, of being a place that kind of transcended certain race, class, and gender lines. No matter who you were, if you were doing something that was interesting, you had some zone of admittance to this world. And I think that that was another thing that, that made Warhol himself appear very attractive, that he was kind of this, this kind of ringmaster of this new way of interacting with each other on that level of culture. Hmm. With some of the names that other people might recognize the people who hung around the factory, but not in, not in the sixties. Uh, well, in the sixties, uh, William S. Burroughs would have been there. Uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat, yes. uh, Keith Haring, Debbie Harry, uh, Mick and Bianca, Jagger, uh, Grace Jones, um, Keith Richards, Paul Morrissey, uh, and um, Lou Reed also hung out there. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about uh, one of the most famous singles that people know? Well, Lou Reed's Walk on the Wild Side, of course, is one of his sort of best-known <coughs> song part from his solo career. It was released on his first really commercially successful album, which was Transformer in 1972. Uh, and I love the name, actually. I mean, I feel that it has a lot to do with Warhol in the sense that, you know, Reed is saying a transformer is an electrical object. It's a device that powers something. But we're also talking about transforming culture through observing it. So uh, the song relates to the superstars and the life of the factory. He mentions Hollywood Lawn, Candy Darling, Joe D'Alessandrio, Jackie Curtis, and Joe Campbell, was referred to in the song by his factory nickname Sugar Plum Fairy. And Walk on the Wild Side is really, uh, it's very ambivalent in a way. It's not necessarily an affectionate song, uh, but it is about the kind of culture of transgression that was sort of permeating and associated with uh, the factory at that time. Period. Mm. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with David Griffin about Andy Warhol and his famous factory or factories. There were three of them. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. Are you a small business trying to navigate the COVID-19 related employment laws? Hello, I'm Eric Sauver, employment law business law attorney and host of the new radio show, Employment Law Today. On my show, we'll have guests to discuss the common employment law challenges business owners are facing during these trying times. Tune in on Tuesday evenings from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time on talkradio.nyc. Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. 
almost every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC at www.talkradio.nyc. Now broadcasting 24 hours a day. And you're back to Rediscovering New York in episode 101. We're talking about famous artistic roundtables in New York. And on this part of the show, we're focusing on Andy Warhol's factory. I almost said roundtable there for a second. Um, David, who I've been holding up this um, uh, jacket of a double book uh, thing I got I got in Montreal. I didn't realize it when I bought it. It was only 100 Canadian dollars. It actually is in French, which is OK, because I can read a little bit of French. I'm not as fluent. I'm not fluent in French. Um, who were the Velvet Underground and Nico? What was their significance in the factory? Well, um, the Velvet Underground, of course, was a band that is... Um, sort of associated with Warhol of the period, uh, Lou Reed being a, a, a figure of the band. Nico was the vocalist for, I believe, was it the first two albums? You probably know more about them than, than I do. Um, but she had a very ethereal sound to her, and um, their music really had a huge influence on the development of later, I think, kind of new wave material and um, other music that was being created in the late 1970s, early 1980s. Do you want to talk about the exploding plastics? The exploding plastics. Nothing quite like the exploding plastics. Um, let's see. <laughs> Maybe you should talk about these. Well, we don't have to talk about the exploding plastics if you want okay. to. I just thought uh, they were uh, a fun thing to talk about. Um, I want to talk about a couple of the Warhol superstars, Baby Jane huh. Holzer and Edie Sedgwick. Who were they and what were they known for? Well, Baby Jane Holzer was the first of the Warhol superstars, and she is now, you know, an artist in her own right. She's been a major figure in the art world for many years. And um, she sort of became noted for these kind of aphoristic uh, works of art. Uh, she was a early star of many of Warhol's films, and she was sort of part of the whole deadpan culture of the time. Um, you know, Baby Jane Holzer was a person who was a superstar because Warhol said she was a superstar, and she kind of took that and ran with it. Um, Edie Sedgwick was a very well-to-do young lady. She came from a very upper-class family, and she was sort of drawn to Warhol's world, I think, for, you know, for reasons that I think were, were her own. She was kind of fascinated by the idea of this life that was of transgression. It wasn't the sensibility she had been raised with. Uh, she was a very beautiful woman. Um, she photographed gorgeously. Uh, she was the quote-unquote star of several of the screen tests, which were photographic reels that were created during that time period. 
And unfortunately, um, as did many of the, the members of this particular group of people, um, she did die of a drug overdose at a, at a very young age. So um, I think there were some depths there that remained untapped. And I think it's also important to kind of acknowledge the fact that this lifestyle was not positive necessarily for everyone. Um, you know, that people did fall by the wayside, um, literally or figuratively. And that, um, you know, there was a sense that if you were shut out of this, it was catastrophic for some of these people. Uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that, I think, when we get to Bowers Solanus, um, you know, which is sort of the ultimate sort of factory moment in a way. Um, yes, indeed. Yeah, you know, I mean, what could be more ironic than that? Uh, but, yeah, I think that a lot of uh, Warhol's people were people who did burn the candle at both ends and... Mm-hmm. Uh, checked out at a, a fairly early age. I think people like Ondine, um, you know, numerous other people who died in their, you know, mm-hmm. 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, you know, it just the the lifestyle, uh, the drugs, et cetera, and so forth, it caught up with them. So mm-hmm. uh, that was probably one of the reasons why the factory, like the round table, began to fade away. Uh, you know, people just couldn't live like that 24-7 anymore. No. By the way, the Exploding Plastics Inevitable was a series of multimedia events. Uh, Warhol organized them. Uh, It featured music by the Velvet Underground and Nico and also screenings of Warhol's films and dancing performances uh, on on location. Um, Let's talk about Warhol's films before we get to one of the uh, sort of outcasts who would change Warhol's life, uh, not for the better. Um, what was unique about Warhol's films? Well, a lot of um, his films were based sort of on the idea that observing something was enough, that you didn't have to have a narrative, you didn't have to have a storyline. You know, you could look at something and just look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it and look at it. I think one of Warhol's most significant films is called Empire. And it is a, as I recall, it's a 20 I think it's 26 hours long, um, a single real film of the Empire State Building. And at one point, you know, the lights go on as, you know, the sky darkens. You only see the Empire State Building. And then I believe briefly right before the end, there's a glimpse of a seagull flying between the camera and the building. And, you know, there are some people who say it's really kind of remarkable that Warhol points his camera at something that is you know, at that time, it was the tallest building in New York City. It was the tallest building in the world. And it is a great work of Art Deco architecture. But to look at it in that way and kind of just say objectively, this is what 24 hours or however long it is looking at the Empire State Building is like, it's sort of a little bit about taking things for granted. It's sort of a little bit about, I think, the fact that things that we film or photograph have an independent existence in the real world. They continue onwards. They don't you know, they're not there for us. They're there because they're there. Uh, and I think a lot of that crept into Warhol's more narrative style films. There weren't a lot of them, but there were a number of films, like, for example, Flesh for Frankenstein, Warhol's Dracula. These were actually films that were made more by other directors, other people. And they were made mm-hmm. under the Warhol rubric, but they had a kind of a deadpan gloss to them. There's a film called Silent Night, Deadly Night that is, on the face of it, it's a it's a tacky horror film from like 1982 or something. It has Mary Warnoff in it. Undine is in it. Candy Darling is in it. All these other people are in it. Basically the Warhol crowd. 
and it's set in this uh, old mansion on Long Island, and you know, a killer hacks everybody up. It, in some ways, it, it's like the dumbest thing you've ever seen, but it's kind of about that dumbness in a way. So mm. I think that's what Warhol was saying. He once he once said the best parody of anything is the thing itself, mm. and I think that gets to the heart of his films. Well, David, like all of our talks on the air, time has gone by really fast and we're almost out of time. And the minute we have left, I'll talk about Valerie Solanas, uh, who shot Andy Warhol. Uh, yes. And if you ever want to see the film, I shot, shot Andy, Andy Warhol. Warhol. I totally recommend it. It's brilliantly done. I think um, Lily Taylor, who plays Valerie Solanas, does a brilliant job with that role. Valerie Solanas was a feminist writer of some notoriety. Uh, she was extremely eccentric. She wrote what was called the Scum Manifesto, the Society for Cutting Up Men. And she had a real sort of, um, I'm not quite sure what the, what the term would be. To call her a misandrist would be, um, a misogynist actually would be not overstating the case. She left a play in Warhol's office. She wanted him to read it, to review it. Someone misplaced this manuscript. She thought he had stolen it. She thought that he had some kind of nefarious plan for it. She grew obsessed with him. Uh, she went to the factory in the Decker building, uh, which is the one on Union Square, was the second of the factory locations. And, uh, you know, as I said, Warhol had a very open door policy at that time. Anyone could come in who wanted to. And she went upstairs and she uh, demanded the play, I believe, from his secretary. The secretary said, we don't have it. And so she shot Andy Warhol um, several times. She shot an art critic. Um, she tried to shoot Andy's agent, but her gun jammed. She turned herself in immediately afterward. Um, but she really had um, injured Warhol very severely. He was in very, very poor health for the rest of his life. Uh, the gallbladder operation that he had in his 50s that then led to his death probably did so because his health was in such fragile state from that. Um, one of the interesting kind of footnotes to that was that Warhol himself said uh, about the attack, before I was shot, I always thought that I was more half there than all there. I always suspected that I was watching TV instead of living life. People sometimes say that's the way things happen in movies is unreal, but actually it's the way things happen in life that's unreal. The movies make emotions look so strong and real, whereas when things really do happen to you, it's like watching television. You don't feel anything. Right when I was being shot, and ever since, I knew that I was watching television. The channel switched, but it's all television. Um, one of the bullets from Valerie Solanas pierced a large portrait of Marilyn Monroe that Warhol had been working on. That work is now referred to as Orange Shot Marilyn. It has the bullet hole from Valerie Solanas in it. And one of the critics said, what could be better? How could you improve a painting by, of Marilyn Monroe by Andy Warhol except to put a bullet hole? <laughs> so it, it, sometimes it has been displayed, I believe, with um, uh, it's sort of like by Andy Warhol with contributions by Valerie Solanas. <laughs> So, yeah. And then, of course, that changed the factory. Warhol uh, yeah. uh, moved and uh, really it was, it was not the same place. David, we're at a time. We, our time always goes so quickly. Um, our guest on this program about New York's artistic circles, the Algonquin Hotel and Andy Warhol's factory, was David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Uh, David can be reached at www.landmarkbranding.com. I also recommend his blog, Every Building on Fifth. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoverynewyork.nyc. 
You can like us on Facebook and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handles there are Jeff Goodman NYC. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Chris Pappas, mortgage banker at TD Bank, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, focusing on wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Brown Harris Stevens in New York. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer this evening is the ever-patient Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin, our guest tonight of Landmark Branding. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, John. Broadcasting 24 hours a day. Hey, everybody, it's Tommy D, the nonprofit sector connector, coming at you from my attic. Each week here on talkradio.nyc, I host a program, Philanthropy and Focus. Nonprofits impact us each and every day, and it's my focus to help them amplify their message and tell their story. Listen each week at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time until 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right here on talkradio.nyc. Hi, I'm Graham Dobbin. Join me every Thursday evening for the Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. We speak to people from business, sport, military and politics, all around what makes a great leader. The personal experiences of what's worked and, maybe more importantly, what hasn't worked. So, that's 7 o'clock every Thursday evening. The Mind Behind Leadership here on talkradio.nyc. Listen to real stories of real leaders. Hi, I am Joseph Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Wise Content Creates Wealth. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Friday afternoon from 1 p.m. to 2. They say content is king. Well, wise content rules the world. Every episode features tools and tips for content marketing and business people telling the wise content stories of that success. Tune in every Friday from 1 p.m. to 2 on talkradio.nyc. you listeners looking to boost your business why not advertise on talk radio nyc with very reasonable rates interested simply send us a message on our website talkradio.nyc do you love or are you intrigued about new york city and its neighborhoods i'm jeff goodman host of rediscovering new york a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. Howdy, I am Joseph Franklin.
Brooklyn McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7. Every episode is dedicated to memorable experiences in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park and surrounding areas. This show features experts and locals who will expound upon the richness of culture, history, and adventure that awaits you in the Smokies. Tune in every Tuesday from 6 p.m. to 7 on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to Talk Radio NYC. Uplift, educate, empower. 